and you'd like to go ahead and find the book of Obadiah, you can turn there. We're going to be finishing our study of the book of Obadiah. As we get ready for a global focus, one of the things that you'll see happening, uh, we have a man coming to speak on Sunday morning called Greg Pruitt is his name. Greg heads up Pioneer Bible Translators, and Greg wrote a book called Extreme Prayer, and we're going to have those books. We've ordered them, and we're praying that they'll be here on time uh, for that Sunday, and we're going to have a copy for every family here at the church that we'd like to just give you, Uh, and we're going to spend some time going through the fall walking through each element of prayer that's kind of outlined there. So we're excited about that, to be able to do it. Uh, I want to bring you up to speed. Uh, If you haven't ever read Obadiah or you missed either of the previous two messages, um, Obadiah is one of the 12 minor prophets, minor in name because of the length. It's, It's a short book. In fact, Obadiah is one of those books like in the New Testament. There are, there's not Obadiah chapter one. There's just Obadiah. It's only one chapter, you know. So uh, not unlike Philemon or uh, some of the other epistles that are small like that. Um, But it's called the Minor Prophets just because of its length. It's it's shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of those longer. Uh, And some people have called these Minor Prophets the Book of the Twelve because there's 12 of them. And they they were seen as as one book uh, by many people written Uh, with a similar message because each of them deals with specific people, groups, and they have something to say about something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, Sometimes this leads to a little bit of difficulty in interpretation because you might be reading something that is very simply prophetic for the time that these people were living in. In the next few years, you're going to see this happen. God's going to do this. But sometimes, as we'll see tonight, There's a very near and present prophetic application, but there's also a futuristic application towards something that's happening again later on, which may make it a little bit difficult. I I realize that probably somebody out here tonight is going, does our pastor hate us? Because he makes us study these minor prophets every fall. Yes. (laughs) I love you. That's why we do it. Uh, It's important. I really believe that God gave us his word for a reason. And the whole counsel of the word of God needs to be looked at, examined, and applied in our lives. Whether we fully grasp it or understand it, we have to wrestle with it. And so we've done this now for about five years. We've been going through these, one of these every fall. And I think think it's really important for us to do that. Uh, Even though the interpretation can be difficult and even though it can be hard to understand, I think that's where most of us leave them is that we don't want to do anything difficult and we don't want to have to wrestle with any of this. And to be honest with you, if you've ever read the Bible all the way through in a year, you probably know that there's a certain point when you've been in prophecy for months that you don't know if the sun's coming up tomorrow. I mean, honestly, you start to think like, God, have you left us? And that's when I encourage you to go back to the Gospels and maybe read one of those and then come back and finish the Minor Prophets. But as we finish Obadiah, we're looking at two ideas, restoration and retribution. And this is what uh, kind of surrounds what's known as the day of the Lord in the book of Obadiah. And you're going to see on display the old adage of what goes around actually does come around. You're going to see the golden rule in reverse. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you're going to see that rule reversed in the outworkings of that. 
So let's look at verse 15 in the book of Obadiah. And we'll read through 21. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. Esau and those of the Shephelah and the Philistine plain and also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Joseph and Jacob represent Israel when we're reading this. Esau represents the nation of Edom. So when we're understanding that, if you're reading through that and you're going, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, just keep those things in mind. And as we begin, we need to see how Obadiah introduces the day of the Lord and he gives us this picture of it drawing near. You might imagine it like being out on the Western Plains. If you've ever been out West, you realize that you can see for miles and miles and miles, so unlike what we see here because of the rolling hills where it's just harder to get a full picture but you might imagine it like this out on the Western Plains where you see that small little dot forming and you begin to realize that it's a thundercloud. But it's so far away and it's moving so slowly, you don't know if it's ever going to reach you. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, it seems like it's never going to arrive, but it steadily marches on until they reach your location. And as it comes and comes and bears down on you, there's not a thing you can do about it. Well, Obadiah says this is happening for every nation. And I want us to camp out here for a second. As he did in verse 15, he said, the day of the Lord draws near for all nations. All of the world powers who have seemed invincible are no more. We can go back into the scriptures and talk about the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks. You can come into modern day and talk about the third Reich. People that seemed invincible and evil, the day of the Lord drew near and they do not exist anymore. Now it would be foolish for us to think that our nation exists in a different, different category. If God tarries, in all likelihood, America will not be the world power that it is today. You understand that, right? If history repeats itself, we understand that, that God raises up nations and he brings them low for his own purposes. We need to get comfortable with that idea in one hand and on the other hand, be very uncomfortable with it and do all that we can to do something about it. All right, so there's, there's a duality there that we understand. It's a warning to us. There's not any nation that's going to last forever. There's not a city that's going to last forever except for one and it's called Zion in our scripture and Zion is the new Jerusalem. When we talk about Zion, we're told that Jesus is going to come back and establish his kingdom one day. He's going to reign. It's going to be perfect and everything is going to be made right at that time. That's the only city then that will last forever. So the day of the Lord will come. His judgment will be poured out on all the nations of the, of the earth and every nation is going to be judged 
based on how they have acted. Or let's put it this way. America is going to be judged based on how we have acted. And so it may give us maybe a reason to ask, well, why hasn't God judged America yet? When I was growing up, the Reverend Billy Graham used to say all the time that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's coming, right? Judgment is coming. We understand that. And what are we going to be judged on? We're going to be judged on what we've done. Well, why hasn't God judged America yet? I don't know, but if we were to speculate a guess, we might say that God hasn't judged America yet because we're still the light of the world. We're still sending missionaries all over the place. We're still trying to make a difference. The church is still alive and well. But God's raising up a people for himself all over the world, and they're not just Americans. The Chinese church is on fire. All around the world, you're seeing believers coming to know the Lord. You're seeing them spread the gospel. So God is raising up a peculiar people for himself. But we never should hold in our minds this idea that God won't judge this nation. And I think that's why we've got to be careful with the leaders we elect because they enact policies that directly impact people. Those policies always involve people. And that's what exactly had happened here. Edom had watched as Israel basically was burned to the ground. And the scripture says they enjoyed it. They loved it. They reveled in it. They didn't help their brothers. Jacob and Esau, the the two people that these nations had been formed out of, were brothers. And the the Bible's saying you, you didn't take care of your brothers. Several months ago, as we were in the middle of a little crisis here, I began to think about how Leaders involve people all the time, and policies involve people all the time. And I came as close as I've ever come to doing something that I've never done before as your pastor, and it involved the issue of immigration and the separation of families at the border. Now, I have no problem with nations making laws for immigration and securing borders. They're well within their rights to do that. But that became an issue for me because I began to think that no matter which party you were affiliated with, we were using people as political bargaining chips. That's not right. God says we're to value people, to value the family, right? And I came as close as I've ever come as to writing a note to all of you and asking you to write our leaders and contact our leaders and just say, stop it. Come to an agreement. Democrats and Republicans, come to an agreement and stop this. It's wrong. We're foolish to think that those things aren't going to be mentioned in our lives. God cares about the way we treat those who try to enter our country. He cares about the way we treat people. He cares about the family. And I'm thankful that both parties seem to be working together now. And and right about the time I was about to do that, they, they seem to come to some sort of agreement. But we need to be mindful of that. The church rises up and says things about that. The church has to understand that how we treat people It's how we'll be judged. How our nation treats other nations is how we'll be judged. Edom was judged by how they treated Israel, and I believe that we'll be judged in how we treat Israel. God's not finished with his people. We might even say that Edom is a reminder of God's present judgment so that we don't think that God has become unconcerned with things on earth. He's very concerned. Peter, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' followers, writes this, In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, how do you count slowness? 
I don't know how you are, but I'm impatient. And things like Amazon Prime are only making it worse. Right? Do you know what I mean? I don't have to leave my house anymore. I can dial up whatever I want, and it's there at my house in two hours for free. If I need it in an hour, I can pay five bucks. Right? I mean, that makes me impatient with other things. Does it make you impatient? Do you find yourself as impatient as I am with these other things? I want it within a few minutes. We're in this instant age of gratification, and God doesn't, God doesn't act like that. He doesn't operate like that. Someone sent me an email that told the story of a man who had a dream that he came face to face with God in his dream. And the man asked God if a second was like a thousand years when God considered time. And God replied to the man and said, that's true. One second is like a thousand years. And the man then asked God if a million dollars was valued like a penny in God's currency. And again, God replied to the man that was also true. Money really didn't matter. The streets were paved with gold. Energized and maybe a little emboldened by these answers, the man took a step of boldness and asked God for a penny. And God said, sure, give me a second. <laughs> Many of us have felt like God's on vacation. We, we felt like that as we were asking God to do things and waiting on him to move, that it's just like he was gone. But I want to remind you from the Old Testament, we serve the living God. That's how Elijah taunted the false prophets of Baal. Shout louder, he's asleep. Call out to him. Maybe he's gone away. He's busy doing something else. Surely he will answer you and send fire down on this offering, but he didn't because the false God can't respond. The living God always responds. We haven't seen God be in a hurry. And so that's maybe led us to conclude incorrectly that that delay means one of two things. One, we believe he'll never act. That's dangerous. Two, we believe he isn't powerful enough to act. And both of those statements are lies from the enemy. The enemy wants you to believe the day of the Lord will never come. It will never happen. He wants you to believe that it's far off and you have plenty of time. And it just doesn't matter because everybody's got plenty of time. The enemy wants you to believe there's no hope. He wants you to believe that God will never right the wrongs. Last month, Dad and I were in Maryland speaking at a conference called Church Alive Conference. And one of the guest speakers was a man named Bob Sorhe. Bob spoke about the parable of the unrighteous judge. In this parable, Jesus told of a judge who was not righteous. He was corrupt. And there was a widow who came to him and said, I need you to give me justice against my adversary. My adversary has wronged me and it is right for you to give me justice and the man kept putting her off. The unrighteous judge didn't want to have anything to do with her. And Jesus told this parable and said, God will act with your perseverance. Because the unrighteous judge didn't answer the widow because it was the right thing to do. He got tired of her asking. Her persistence led God to move. And Jesus says, be persistent in prayer. Because though you think God's delaying, all of a sudden, it will come, and he will answer because of your persistence in your prayer. Here's what he said, and I want you to hear this because I think it's important. I think it will encourage us all. This is a quote from Bob. We confuse God's delay with an answer of no in our lives. We confuse God's delay for an answer of no in our lives. 
Have you ever been frustrated that, by that delay? I have. But don't for a moment think that God's delay means that he won't act or he's incapable of acting or he's not powerful enough to act. God's not slow or slack concerning his promises. And that means that we shouldn't presume on his patience and think we have time to get things right later because he said he's coming back. He said the day of the Lord will come where he'll judge all the nations. We're part of a nation. God will judge this. He'll judge us. It means we should be taking our lives into account every day and be ready for the day of the Lord. Why? Verse 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? It's pretty strong language. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Does that bother you at all? Does does that strike you as a little unsettling to think about, well, how have I done lately with others? How have my dealings been done? Have I been fair? Have I been equitable? Have I done the right thing when no one was looking? Have I been fair in business? Have I been fair at home? Have I been a good husband? Have I been a good wife? Have I honored Christ with my life? Because he's saying how you have been is what will be done to you. This morning we talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what I want to be remembered for. It's a reminder. I want God to come back and find me hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Doing the right thing. Why? Look at verse 16 with me of Obadiah. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. When Jerusalem was conquered, the Edomites joined everybody else who had conquered Jerusalem, and they threw this drunken party. Let's get the party started. Israel's no more. You guys did a good job. We're going to join in. We're excited they're out of here. Get them out of here. God's people, they don't need to be here. And they literally went to Jerusalem and threw a drunken party. And what they couldn't see was the party would continue at their expense. The day was coming where it would literally be that they, like they had never existed. It would actually take until 1812 for anyone to be able to find Edom again. Johann Ludwig Berghardt, a Swiss explorer, finally discovered the ruins. So God wasn't kidding, was he? If Edom was destroyed sometime in the third century before Christ was lost, and it took until 1812 for them to even find the ruins, they couldn't even find it. You talk about erasing your name out of the history books as if you didn't even matter. I bet when they popped that first top and decided just to get lit on the, hill, on the hill of Jerusalem, they couldn't imagine that they would not exist. They couldn't imagine. I bet they sobered up pretty quick, though, when the day of the Lord came to them. That's how it is, guys. That's how it is. Look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. That's Jerusalem. The hill, Mount Zion. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will, be set, and they will set them on fire and consume them. So there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. 
No one could imagine that God would restore Israel and tear apart Edom. The Edomites were on top of the world and nothing could shake them. They lived in this place, actually, that was inaccessible. Some have said that the only way into Edom was through these narrow canyons and that it was kind of believed that as few as 10 to 20 men could guard the passageway. No one could get there. It was an impregnable defense. And God said, you think this is the way it is, but you're going to be burned up. Let me give us a couple of takeaways about this. Number one, the day of the Lord is coming. The funny thing about the day of the Lord is it's joyful and terrible all at the same time. It's both. The day of the Lord will be joyful. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the day of the Lord is joy. When we see the Lord Jesus Christ, as the scripture says, he parts the eastern sky and he comes back to take the church. Not this church, those who are part of the church universal, right? Those who are believers. And he calls them home to glory. In that day, first things have passed away. No more trials, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness, no more death. No more worry. In that day, that's a joyful day. But that day is going to be a dreadful day for people too. Because on that day, it's too late. It's too late. You can't go back and make it right then. And that's a reminder to us as believers too. We can't go back and bring anybody else with us then. As Jesus calls us home to glory, there's no time left to share. There's no time left to witness. There's no time to invite someone to a service. There's no time to give someone a Bible. It, it's over. And that's a terrible terrible thing, a terrible day. Last week, I told our staff, I don't know what happened. I blanked. I had zero for gospel engagements. Zip. I had opportunities. I just didn't have my brain turned on. There was nothing there. As we studied these passages this week, it was just a reminder that time is short. And I told them, and I've already rectified it, there would be gospel engagements when I showed up to staff meeting this week because the time is short. There's no time like the present to tell someone about Jesus. No time like the present to share the gospel and ask the Holy Spirit to move in people's lives. The, Lord, the day of the Lord is coming. Second, don't get, thought, don't get caught thinking that the delay means it will never happen. Delay doesn't mean never. Delay means later. Maybe you just needed to hear that for your prayer life tonight, that the delay is not a no. That if you're waiting on God and you're praying through that, well, that's fine. If that's what you take away from this tonight, that's okay. The delay is not always no. God says yes, no, keep praying. Yes, no, keep praying. If he said no, you can keep praying, but you're wasting your time. If he said yes, praise the Lord. If he's been silent, Keep praying. Delay doesn't mean no. If God says to us, you need to keep praying, we need to keep praying. He is able. He's not slow as some count slowness when it, slowness when it comes to his promises. He will deliver those. He's coming back to take us home. He will right the wrongs of this world. That leads us to the third thing. 
Don't believe the lie that says the wicked get away with everything. God, why aren't you doing something? That's what the Israelites were saying. We're being torn apart down here. And our brothers, who you didn't favor, you didn't favor Esau, you favored Jacob, Lord. They have it all. Their cities are growing. Our cities are burned to the ground. Why are they getting away with it? The wicked are ultimately undone undone by their own pride. Ultimately, they can't make it. They're undone by their own pride. It goes before them and it becomes the pit of death that they stumble into for their final resting place. Turn in your Bibles, if you could, to Psalm 37. I want to remind us about what David says about this in Psalm 37. One of my favorite psalms, because it speaks to this very issue of what do we do when it just seems like the world is getting away with everything and we're getting away with nothing. Psalm 37, verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. These words that he used are pretty appropriate for this time of year. Uh, Normally in August, we get that little dry spell like we've kind of had, and I don't know how your yard has looked, but my yard got from green to crunchy pretty quick. We don't water the yard, right? And that's a a very kind of stark image for for us to see. He says, the wicked are going to be like the grass in your yard that look like they're flourishing in one minute, But then August comes and the drought hits, and just like you thought it was great, it's like that. Or picture it like this. It's the plant that you water and tend to when it sits on your front porch and you go away for a week of vacation and you come back and it's dead because the neighbor kid didn't water it that quickly. Strong, healthy, seem to be vibrant and growing, and then gone. But then he also says... Our responsibility is to trust the Lord and do good. It's the positive action. You do something. You live correctly, cultivating faithfulness. That's how you delight in the Lord. You cultivate faithfulness by placing all of your delight in the Lord. And what he begins to say is, as you do that, verse 6 is the promise. As you trust him, he's going to do something, and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your judgment as the noonday. The judgment that exists over a believer's life and a non-believer's life should be very stark in contrast, right? Judgment should be for the believer, well done, good, faithful servant, enter into your rest. It shouldn't be, depart from me, I never knew you. Or, you know, you are covered by the blood of the lamb, but how you've been living is the reason you were called home. Enter into your rest, because it's better for you to be here than profaning my name down below. Our judgment should stand out. It should be something that people are able to see. 
And as he says that, our righteousness is a light. Judgment is noonday. That means that there's nothing to hide. In the light of the day, there's nothing to hide. The thief doesn't come at noon. He comes at night. He comes in, in darkness to be hidden. And what Jesus is saying through David, what we saw this morning, you hunger and thirst for righteousness that shines. It's huge for us. Because as we live, how we live, that's how we'll be judged. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you just a couple of simple questions. If today is the day of the Lord, if this is it, are you ready? One answer to that would be no, I'm not ready. And there may be two reasons for that. One is because you've never given your life to Christ. You've never repented of your sins. And I would just tell you, would you do it now? Because the day is coming when it's too late. You can't go back. Don't think that God is just twiddling his thumbs. Or that he's not coming back or he's not powerful enough. Make tonight the night that you give your life to Christ. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Maybe the second reason you would say no is, well, I'm a believer, but I'm not ready. There's some stuff, Pastor, that's just not there where it needs to be. Would you tonight take a moment and make it right with the Lord? Be ready. Maybe you answered, yes, I'm ready for him to come. Keep praying in hope. Walking by faith. And make sure that in the time that we have, we see this as a golden opportunity to share Christ with as many people as we can. Who do you need to share with this week? May God bring someone to all of our minds right now. Give them a Bible. Leave tonight and get a track out of the track rack. Pray for people. Engage them with the gospel. Don't get caught thinking that you can do it next week or the following week. Be faithful. Father, as we close this series tonight, we're reminded that how we deal with people, you're going to deal with us in the same way. I know that we want our righteousness to shine like the noonday. We want our righteousness, Lord, to be the thing that there's nothing hidden. And so we pray that you would find us faithful. We pray for those of us tonight.
who have answered no, we're not ready. For the one who doesn't know you, I pray in just a moment, if they haven't already, they give their life to you, Lord. And for the believer who would say, I know that I'm saved, but I'm not ready. God, would you do a work in their lives right now? May there be nothing hidden in here, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to stand. We're going to sing. I'm going to be at the front. If you need someone to pray with you, if you'd like to invite Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you just need to rededicate your life, you do that now as we respond.